Hi, how are you? You found the room. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Doing? Hi, can you hear me? Yes, I'm sorry, okay. I'm late. Uh, I I know I promised you to be here five minutes earlier. Oh, no worries. <laughs> it's good. Okay. Hi, Dr. Olu. Thank you for coming. Hi. Uh, meet um, Dr. Zingupta. Um, she, yeah, she's our guest speaker. So we'll wait like three minutes, three, four minutes to give people yeah. time to find the room and then and then I'll introduce you and then we'll start. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, we can slowly start. Um, I think um, we can slowly start. People are starting to come in, so um, I'll introduce you, and then we we can go ahead. So, um, welcome everyone to the Science Society. Thank you for coming, and a special thanks to Dr. Singupta. Uh, she is joining us today to talk about her really interesting new paper, so congratulations. And let me just give you a little bit of background information. And please, Dr. Singhuba, just fill in. So um, she um, did her um, uh, first education at the Indian Institute of Science, Education and Research at Kolkata, uh, India. And um, she then was a graduate student at Yale University School of Medicine. And now she's um, she started the position last year in September as a postdoctoral researcher at Princeton University. 
And uh, yeah, um, thank you so much for coming and congratulations to your PhD and your postdoc position. And um, yeah, welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, it's really great to meet you all. I hope you all are doing well. Um, thank you also for the introduction. That was really kind. Um, is my voice clear? Like, can everyone hear me? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, okay, so um, I today I'm looking forward to talking about some of our work that I did as a graduate student while at Yale and. Uh, while presenting it, I would love any discussions, ideas, feedback, uh, questions. Um, and so the work that um, we are looking forward to discuss today are, is on how neurons um, find their place in the developing brain. And so the animal brain, um, as we are all familiar, is this really complex organ. And we really know so little about it. Um, we know so little about how it develops and how it functions. The human brain, for example, has uh, billions of neurons and uh, trillions of connections between the neurons. And these neurons are not really present as this tangled mesh. They are super organized. And uh, they are organized in these neural circuits, which are these group of neurons that enable specific behaviors and other uh, other body functions. Now, when an animal develops, uh, these neural circuits in the brain have to form properly, because if these circuits don't form properly, you could end up having neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism, as well as neurological disorders such as schizophrenia and others. So animals invest a lot of resources in building their brain during development. Now, a series of developmental events have to occur perfectly for the brain to complete forming and to reach its fully functional state. Now, some of these events are known. So for example, we know that early in development, a set of cells take on the identity of neurons. So they become neurons and then they migrate to specific parts of the brain. So these neurons are sort of destined to reach specific regions of the brain where they will perform their specific functions. Now, our work was focused on understanding, well, when the neuron has reached a particular region of the brain, how does it become placed correctly and how does it connect to the right partners to then you know, form a functional circuit and enable a particular behavior, right? Now, so, so the question is how do neurons reach the right part of the brain and then form the right connections? Is placed correctly and form the right connections, right? And so we set out to answer this question using this nematode worm, um, C. elegans, as a model. Um, for those of you who are less familiar with um, C. elegans, it is nothing like the worms that we are used to, the more large-sized um, earthworms, they are smaller and cuter. They're easy to grow in the lab. Their genes are similar to ours and other animals. They have transparent bodies, and this makes them easier to look at using imaging or microscopy. So all these reasons make C. elegans this champion model organism for for many research topics, um, including our question, which is the question of how neurons are placed in the developing brain. Now, um, C. elegans neurons are similar functionally and, and also structurally to our neurons, and they are organized in these nerve bundles. So you could, for example, study in C. elegans, how a specific neuron is positioned in a specific bundle. And then these, uh, and the knowledge that we gain would be translatable to higher animals, such as in humans, right? And so uh, neurons, of course, are these really beautiful and specialized cells, right? So they have a cell body, which is this roundish part where, you know, the cell organelles are present, a lot of the cell activities are going on. And they have these long extensions, 
which are either sending or receiving signals from other neurons. Now, these extensions, so when a neuron is growing out, these extensions have this really specialized structure at their tip or ending, which is called a growth cone as, you know, they are cone-shaped and they help in growth. So these structures are essentially sensory structures, so they are literally almost like a human hand, which is sort of feeling about, sort of feeling for uh, chemicals in the environment of the brain and trying to steer the neuron towards its right location. And so a lot of the field has been uh, interested in how uh, these specialized structures at the tip of the neuron helps the neuron reach a particular place. Um, however, one of the things that we found really surprisingly from our study, uh, and later on I'm going to go into details of how, we found that you know, this growth from the tip or ending is not the only thing that dictates where a neuron ends up. Um, so the neuron extensions as a whole can move and zipper to other neuron extensions. And so this process of zipping up of neurons literally resembles the fastening of a zipper. So, um, and this helps neurons sort of come really close to their right partners and form the right connections, right? Now, in order to see a phenomenon like this, such as zipping up of these neuron extensions, you would have to image this developmental process live, right? In real time, as the neurons are placing themselves in the brain. Now, imaging single neurons within a developing animal is challenging. Most imaging in neuroscience you know, is done in fixed tissues that are stained, and so that tissue is already dead. But when you are imaging neurons within a living animal, first of all, you have to specifically label the neuron of your interest so that you're not confused as to where in the brain you're looking. And also, you cannot Im keep imaging because um, you know animals are really susceptible to light, so you would end up killing your animal, and so affecting their development and eventually killing them. And so, um, so to do this, so most conventional labeling methods in neuroscience would end up you know, labeling a bunch of neurons in the brain. And so then you're, um, you're, you're confused by the signal that's coming from other neurons, so you don't really know what to look at. So we um, found this interesting molecular technique that can actually subtract the labeling from a subset of neurons. And so we are left with labeling in only the neuron of our interest. And so we can now sort of track this single neuron over time from the time it is born till it grows out and places itself in and forms the right circuits. So we thought that was really cool. Um, and then coming to the imaging challenge, well, you know, as I mentioned, you have this problem that if you keep live imaging an animal, you hurt the animal, you, you, know, you subject it to light damage, right? So um, to sort of address that challenge, we collaborated with microscopists and computational biologists to uh, build an imaging system in our lab that would let us image the animal throughout its development and look at its neurons. And so how do we do this? How do we image neurons continuously without hurting the animal? Um, so traditionally in most imaging systems or microscopes, you would go in with a beam of light and sort of go through the sample point by point, right? But this would, you know, hurt the animal because you're going point, point by point and you take a long time to go through the whole sample. And so, and it's also slow, so you could miss out on developmental processes that are fast, right? So a couple of decades ago, scientists sort of tried to play with this idea that, well, instead of going in with this beam of light, which is going through the sample point by point, 
we could potentially use a sheet of light. Now, if you're using a light sheet, we can qu quickly sweep through the sample, uh, through the three-dimensional space of the sample. And what that would do is, well, that would be fast, so you could capture the really fast developmental processes. And because now this is fast, you're not hurting the animal as much, right? And so this microscopy method called light sheet microscopy has now become really widely used. It has been really successful in looking at these long-term developmental processes. Using these, this light sheet, you end up reducing the time for which a biological sample is uh, subjected to light, and therefore you can now look at prolonged processes, whether they are cell biological processes or brain function or, or in our case, you know, development, right? And so um, to answer our question of how neurons find their place in the brain, we um, use light sheet microscopy and so, and then this method of labeling the neuron of our interest and we were able to track the single neuron we were interested in. And that is when we found these really crazy events where these neuron extensions are zipping up to one another to place themselves in the right part of the brain. You know, additionally, we also saw that the zippering, you know, happens in a particular order. So certain parts of the neuron zip up first, followed by other parts. And this has implications for the biology of the neuron. So, you know, the, this, this sort of maximizes the number of contacts that the neuron can form, and therefore, the number of biological processes or behaviors that it can influence. And really stepping back, what is remarkable is that we can see these dynamics live. And this is important because it you know, tells us how these different developmental steps are related in time, right? So it tells us, well, you know, the neuron growing out and forming contacts are taking place either simultaneously or one after the other. And it also tells us when these things are happening in the context of the development of the whole animal, so the entire course of development of the animal. So C. elegans, very conveniently, also has a short developmental time. So its embryo would develop and hatch in 14 hours. So, um, so that 14 hours is analogous to our, in, in case of humans, the nine months, right? And so in humans and as well in C. elegans, there are still changes that happen post-embryonic post stages, but a lot of the development happens in the embryonic stage. And for C. elegans, it's like 14 hours. And with this light sheet microscopy, we can constantly image for the entire 14 hour period. And light sheet microscopy, of course, can um, be used to image uh, neurodevelopment in other animals too that have longer developmental times, such as, the, such as over the course of days even. Now, um, so this zippering mechanism that we discovered was something really new and unexpected to us. And we wanted to understand um, more about how mechanistically it is happening. What also got us very excited is that a couple of years prior to our discovery, similar mechanisms had been observed in mammalian neurons grown in a culture dish in lab, but it was not known whether this can actually happen in animals. And so our discovery therefore showed for the first time that a mechanism like this can indeed happen in a developing animal, and we showed in what context it, it can happen. But the observation that this can happen in developing C. elegans embryos, as well as in mammalian neurons in a dish, suggests that you know, whatever we discover is translatable to other systems too, to, to for example, mammalian systems and to uh, other, other mammals such as humans. Now, to understand how these neuron extensions zip up, what drives this, right? So when two neurons 
have properly zipped up. They are right next to each other and perfectly aligned with each other. We found that in animals where we disrupted some molecules that drive adhesion between cells, so like certain sticky molecules, we can actually now see gaps between these neurons that are normally expected to be perfectly on top of one another. So by disrupting these sticky molecules, we can essentially disrupt the zippering process. So zippering is not happening properly at that point. And in fact, we found that this dynamics of the zippering process is driven by this physical force of adhesion, which is driven by these sticky molecules, but also by a tension or elastic force that the neuron feels when it's growing out during development. And so our work really highlighted that during development, you have to consider the brain as a mechanical environment and not simply a chemical environment. So the mechanical forces that um, are dynamically changing in the brain not only affect the overall structure of the brain in the embryo, but it also really affects how individual neurons are placed, uh, which is really interesting. And it sort of adds a dimension to um, our understanding of the different factors that affect placement of, of neurons during development. Now, um, one other thing that is really cool in the, in the context of these mechanical forces is that, you know, we can actually manipulate mechanical forces in individual nerve bundles in the brain of the developing C. elegans embryo. And when we artificially change the mechanical force in a particular bundle, we can make neurons go to that bundle or zipper to that bundle. Now, this is really powerful since this means that we have such an understanding of the system that we are starting to think of dictating neuron positions and rewiring neurons, which has kind of been a long-standing dream in the neurosci neuroscience field, right? So we can think of now making neurons go to new bundles and form connections there instead of what it normally does. Or in cases where connections are not formed properly to help it form the proper connections. Now, why is the zippering process important to, you know, keep studying and trying to further study and understand? We actually also found in our paper that when we disrupt the zippering process and placement of neurons by the zippering process, we end up disrupting the neurons connections or synapses also. And this leads to a defect in behavior. So, you know, the connections are disrupted as a result, the circuit does not form properly and therefore the worm's behavior is affected as well. And the reason is that, you know, the neuron is not able to place itself properly by zippering and form the connections with its downstream partner. So overall, our study, you know, identified a mechanism by which neurons are placed, a mechanism that had previously not been seen in developing animals, but which we really believe is translatable to many other brain, many other animal brains. Now, this discovery, as I mentioned, was enabled by these dynamic imaging methods, such as light sheet microscopy that we established in collaboration. And one um, you know, additional thing that I'll mention is that at this point, when we sort of got the capability to look at single neurons, look at them over time during development, we decided, well, let's push the boundary one other step uh, and see if we can push the limits of our imaging. So, so far we were able to look at single neurons throughout development. And then we asked, well, can we develop an imaging system where we now can look inside the neuron and look at structures inside the neuron over development in the embryo? And so for that, we um, established another imaging system combined with a deep learning analysis. So we used a neural network to predict what structures within neurons would look like as these neurons are developing in the living animal. And we were successfully able 
to now look at sub-neuronal structures, so like structures within neurons over time um, in these developing embryos. And we are really excited about what new things we would discover using that new imaging method combined with the neural network-based analysis. So I guess overall to, to summarize, um, the imaging systems we established you know, gave us new insights on how neurons are positioned during development. We identified this new mechanism of placement of neurons, the zippering mechanism that I described. And using these imaging systems, you know, we and others in the future can keep making further discoveries on dynamic neurodevelopmental mechanisms and how they shape the developing brain. And that knowledge would be critical in informing us of what could, what happens during normal physiology and what could go wrong during disease and neurodevelopmental disorders. Thank you very much. Um, are there any questions at this point? Thank you so much. This is such an amazing work. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, from technology development through really groundbreaking knowledge and then in using the knowledge to influence the development. Of how long did it take? Like how many mm -hmm. years? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, you know, PhDs are super long usually these days. Um, however, I would say that um, it it was a collaboration. So, you know, the my when I started my PhD, which was um, six, and, so my PhD took about six and a half years, but the work itself took like five and a half years. And so we really started from ground zero because we wanted to first have the imaging systems in place. You know, the, this light sheet mic microscope is a really complicated microscope. So it has multiple light paths, which have to be perfectly aligned. So we figure, we had to figure out sort of the engineering principles first and then sort of have this optimized system where we can take images that are consistently good. And that, that was when we were ready to ask the biological question. So, so it took about five and a half to six years, really. Yeah. So when you started your PhD, did you know what you will get into? <laughs> or or was, it, was it exciting for you? Like, um, right. So, <laughs> yeah, sorry. No, yes. no, go ahead. Yeah, so it was very open at that point, really, um, because we were like, it, it literally was like, okay, so we have this new system, which is powerful, it should help us sort of uh, push our boundaries in some way, because we now have a spatial and temporal resolution that we never had before. So um, my initial goals were very ambitious, to be honest. So we were thinking, oh, we could start with looking at an entire circuit, so all neurons in the circuit, how they are developing, forming connections, and then eventually how the circuit becomes functional, right? So really, we could do a part of it, honestly, <laughs> during the PhD. Hopefully there's more to come. But the other question that would be super interesting to look at is actually look at calcium imaging which is this readout of function of the neurons. So then we can get to the question of, okay, well, in relation to the developmental events that we see, when does the brain actually come online, right? So when do the neurons start firing, right? So that's something that we could never get to. And so when we started, we had uh, a lot of different goals and we could only do part of it, so yeah. So isn't C. elegans, is there also the switch? Um, I know in mammals, I don't remember anymore that uh, during development, um, chloride like GABA is actually in the beginning an excitatory mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. neurotransmitter and then it switches so is in right. C. elegans does that happen the switch in C so I I am not to my knowledge I don't think that has been tested there are studies showing that um there are changes in connections that are made by GABAergic neurons. 
between a particular phase of development and another, and that actually ends up controlling different sets of muscles. But the direction of control exerted by GABA as a neurotransmitter in general, I, I am aware of what you're saying, but I, I think so far to my knowledge that it has mostly been shown in mammalian systems, uh, although I might be wrong, yeah. Yeah, because then it would be interesting to do both, right, during development, like, if that would be the case, the elegance, but the, if it's not, then, yeah. And yeah. Is there a model for, so, so basically, to what extent can you use this for other animal models? Because, mm -hmm. or is there a disease model in C. elegans? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Like, let's say, you know, I know that in autism, for example, the uh, development and placement of specific cell mm -hmm. types is kind of disrupted. So um, mm -hmm. that's why I'm asking. Right. No, that's a great question. So, you know, a lot of the techniques that we developed will be very translatable because we essentially developed pipelines, right? So imaging pipelines. So we, our microscope, for example, can be used to look at other animal brains, um, not necessarily live mammalian brains, uh, because light sheet for that you would need a slightly different light sheet microscope, but you could still use the same technology. Um, a lot of the image ana analysis pipelines we developed are translatable to other systems. You can use those for image analysis uh, in other systems. Um, as for your um, disease model question, Really, um, there are neurological disease models, to my knowledge, not specifically neurodevelopmental disease models, but there uh, is ongoing work. For example, there's work from Paul Sternberg's lab at Caltech that's looking at specific autism disease risk genes and sort of identifying similar variants in C. elegans and engineering uh, similar variants in C. elegans and sort of trying to see what effects there are at the cellular level. And to be honest, like at the organizational level, you know, you have some kind of similarity between C. elegans and other systems, but really at the cellular level, the neurons are very similar. So there are a lot of things that can be learned in, in those uh, mutants or in those variants that are now being engineered. Oh, that's so interesting. And mm -hmm. this will be so helpful for, um, mm -hmm. for those type of disorders the pipelines and technology mm -hmm. that you built. So. But mm -hmm. I, I'm, I wanted to ask if other people have a question. Please flash your mic, um, raise your hands. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Katerina. You actually uh, already asked one of my questions about um, whether it's translatable to uh, clinical or translational um, studies. And, and I want to thank Dr. Sagupta for um, an excellent presentation of her work, which is really exciting. Um, and as Katerina said, it's sort of uh, a tour de force of a combination of a lot of really innovative techniques. So really appreciate that. Um, I, I had a question that was brought up by, um, I think you were mentioning how you can use alteration of mechanical forces to kind of direct the neurons to different mm -hmm. fiber bundles. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. And then I was wondering if that's then related in sort of the natural development of C. elegans to um, having movement, mm -hmm. having an impact on specific aspects of, of neurodevelopment, right? So I'm wondering if, yeah. if movement can induce mm -hmm. those same kind of mechanical forces and, and, and that sort of directs neurons on mm -hmm. where to go mm -hmm. based on the natural movement of the worm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, thank you so much for the question. So actually, um, there was uh, another postdoc in our lab that was interested in that specific question. And definitely these mechanical forces. So, uh, you know, the source of that is very interesting, right? And so in during embryonic development, the C. elegans embryo actually moves within the eggshell even. So there is movement going on. And then people have shown preliminarily that in the worm, once it has hatched, you know, you have some development still going on. And, you know, depending on the movement of the worm, there are neurons that bend and stretch and the positions of those neurons actually change. Um, 
In the context of the embryo, whether the movement of the embryo within the eggshell is actually underlying some of these mechanical forces that affect placement of neurons, that's a very cool question and I don't think that has been directly looked at, but it's definitely worth. I mean, there's work from Miriam Goodman's lab at Stanford that has shown that you can measure um, forces within the embryo using a tension sensor, so that work is really cool. And so potentially you can use that to sort of measure the kind of forces that arise within the embryo as it's moving within the eggshell, and then sort of try to correlate those changes with these neuron placement changes that we see. But that is that is like really wildly interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah, related to that, I'm wondering if there have been studies where you can kind of immobilize um, mm -hmm. the embryo during development and see mm -hmm. how that impacts um, neural development. Yeah, so that's that's another great question. So the the traditional ways of immobilizing embryos. So people have previously used some mutants, but it turned it turns out that those mutants affect neurodevelopment independently. So we cannot use them to make any conclusions. But recently, um, there is a postdoc in one of our collaborators' lab who built a technique. Oh, sorry, built a transgenic strain where, you know, he can use light to immobilize the embryo. So now if you express a certain channel in the muscle of the embryo, now you can use light to send signals through that cha channel and then the muscles are going to paralyze. So we were really going to do this because immobilizing the embryo, you know, we can see if there are actually changes in the neurons themselves. We can see if structures within the neurons change. And so, yeah, if we are able to actually successfully paralyze it and then image it, that would tell us a lot about the role of mechanical forces, yeah. Great, thank you so much. Of course, yeah, thank you for your question. I, I'm very curious, no, I, it's it, profound insights on in your work to the developmental protocols. Um, and I'm curious about the mechanisms that are, that are known and perhaps you've uncovered um, in terms of, is it the case where uh, earlier and older neurons are issuing that signaling gradient to that the later ones come along and, and detect and, and start the zippering process? Or mm -hmm. if, you know, is there some from yeah. the, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a great question again. Actually, um, there have been findings that were made partly in our lab and also in Shai Shaham's lab at Rockefeller, where they actually showed that this other group of cells that are really important in the brain, right, the glial cells, can direct the first set of neurons. So there is, uh, to answer your question, there is definitely hierarchy. So, you know, you start with a particular set of neurons, which, you know, our lab discovered, uh, and they are called pioneer neurons. So they would form the first bundles, right? And then they would sort of, you know, serve as this scaffold on which these other neurons would then go and be positioned. And very interestingly, I guess, like to specifically answer your question, um, what I do see is that the neuron that I see zippering to a specific bundle, that bundle is actually the pioneer bundle. So definitely signals produced by the pioneers is important for zippering. But uh, some of the, you know, the sticky adhesion molecules that I mentioned might probably originate from those pioneer neurons and they're helping these follower neurons to sort of like zipper up to these bundles. So, yeah, you meant in the paper I saw, it was at SYG1 and 2 or like yes. lit receptive pair. Is that, that's the, uh, mm -hmm. now yes. is that, is, so is it sort of a push or a pull type uh, mm -hmm. mechanism? Yeah, so in in this case, it's so we think we have like looked at where these uh, two uh, molecules are expressed, and so Sig one we know is expressed in the final bundle where our neuron zippers onto, and then Sig two is expressed in uh, the neuron that is zippering on uh, later on. So that's kind of, and then we think it's a pull from the from the bundle. From that already exists, so it's it's a pull, and then at the same time there is a tension on the neuron that's growing out, and so this tension on the growing neuron and this pull from the bundle that's already grown out sort of balance each other to uh, to bring about the zippering process. Is what we so think. so Sig two would be the receptor. 
So um, actually, SIG1 biochemically, so people have done biochemical analysis, and these, the SIG1 is the receptor and SIG2 is the ligand, and um, these are analogous to nephrins, which are found in the mammalian kidney. Um, nephrins are also found in the mammalian brain, and their roles are not very well known. So that makes it really interesting, too, that you know, they could have similar roles in the brain, as we see in C. elegans. Fascinating, but so you're, there's a Clio-Stell story going on, though, in terms of initiation. You mentioned there is a what? Glial cell. Exactly. So there is a glial. So the glial cell. Um, you know, this is a this is work by Shai Shaham's lab, and they have shown that they can direct some of the earlier pioneering neurons to their right place. So there is a glia-neuron interaction going on here, which is also really interesting. Thank you. Fascinating of work. Of course. Thank you for your question. I have a question. Thank you for that presentation. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's just relating to what someone asked earlier about um, how many years. So um, mm -hmm. I just had to say you you know you 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 just don't know a lot. You understand like so much and all the different parts of what you um, have been explaining to us. And thank mm -hmm. you. I just wanted to know how you you know how you got around being an expert because um, did you get around that during your PhD were you like studying this since you were born or what because yeah. uh, it's, it's just interesting to know how you got around it how you selected your um, mm -hmm. you know what you were going to focus on mm -hmm. even when you, you probably chose your you know um, field like how did you know what exactly which papers to focus on and which uh, mm -hmm which labs to um, mm -hmm. focus on because apparently mm -hmm. some labs cannot be cited. I don't know, but yeah, mm -hmm. thank mm -hmm. you. Yeah, of course. Um, so, uh, you know, like when I arrived in grad school, so I think I did uh, my undergrad uh, where, you know, like I was foc I was majoring in biology um, and then I thought, okay, like, well, I'll go to grad school, right? And so um, there, you know, once you arrive in grad school, like the, there are, you know, you, you have to, you, you rotate in a bunch of different labs. So you sort of try to get to, you, you get to try a few different things. And so when I rotated, I, I knew I was interested in neuroscience just because in my undergrad classes, the brain just seemed like a very fascinating thing to study. And also the neuron, I was very interested in the neuron as a cell. So, you know, it's a fascinating cell. It has very special features that other cells don't have. So I was very interested in that. So, you know, when I arrived in graduate school, I tried labs that work on neurons. And then I sort of converged onto this lab because not only, you know, the research is like cutting edge and interesting and you have a lot of independence to follow up on what you want to, but also the lab had a great mentoring environment. People were amazing, you know, it was diverse. So I liked that aspect too. So overall, the, you know, considering everything, I decided to go and go ahead and choose this lab. Thank you. Mm -hmm, of course. Um, Hayden, I think you have a question. Hi. Um, Hi. Fascinating, fascinating paper, and congratulations on it. Um, I, I'm, I'm also a PhD student, but I, I actually uh, studied Drosophila, specifically mm -hmm. the, the mushroom body of the Drosophila and its development. Mm -hmm. And it seems like that's also like a really good model system to study this. I was just wondering. Sorry, I, I joined a little late in the discussion. You may mm -hmm. have mentioned this, but just the conservation mm -hmm. of this mechanism. Has any work been done in, you know, model organisms like the Drosophila mm -hmm. mushroom body? Because it also has pioneer neurons. Mm -hmm. um, and I just wasn't sure if a similar mechanism exists there. Yeah, I think the, I, I really think the mushroom body is a very cool organ uh, or a structure. It, it's so plastic. And I, I definitely, you know, when I was rotating in a Drosophila lab, I was like, yeah, the, I think the mushroom body is a really cool place. Um, you know, I, as I mentioned, uh, this mechanism of uh, zippering that we discovered, it, it, we saw it for the first time in an animal, uh, but it has been seen in, uh, 
mammalian cell culture. So it has been seen in mouse neurons and rat neurons, uh, but those were in cultures in a dish. It hasn't been shown in Drosophila, but you know, a lot of these mechanisms we think would be really important for positioning neurons within bundles or fascicles. And those are really common in the Drosophila brain as well. And you know, you have these like nerve bundles and cords and fascicles, right? And th there are some regions um, where, you know, the new the neurite targets to particular layers or bundles, but there are also other regions where you have two neuron extensions or neurites going along each other, right? So, you know, for especially relationships like that where there are two neurites that are perfectly aligned, uh, mechanisms like zippering would uh, likely be very, uh, very relevant. Uh, but yeah, it hasn't been uh, investigated in Drosophila yet, but, but we guess based on, you know, the anatomy of the uh, Drosophila brain that it would be, would be relevant, yeah. Yeah, thank you. And I was also wondering, you may have, again, answered this previously, but mm -hmm. just in terms of, um, you know, pruning, how, how does that um, come into effect? I'm not sure if there's mm -hmm. extensive pruning in the, mm -hmm. um, in the worm like there is during the Drosophila development. Right. So I would say that definitely there are a couple of reports. So there are reports on axonal pruning and as well as synaptic pruning. Uh, they are mostly studied in the in post-developmental contexts and less in developmental um, contexts. But, um, you know, like I, you know, as with the worm, I was mentioning this as well, that embryonic development was really inaccessible to us. We weren't able to access it before these imaging technologies. So now that we can look cellularly and subcellularly, we can potentially address the question of pruning. We can ask, oh, well, there are, are there more synapses to start with? And then do they decrease? And even at the axonal level, you know, uh, do axons grow out to a certain extent first and then reduce in length. So these are things that we can now start to answer because we have these dynamic imaging tools. Great, thank you so much. Of course, thank you for your question. Um, Harshad, I think you, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Thank you, it was interesting presentation and nice work. Can you maybe elaborate on the time scale of this separate mechanism? Mm -hmm. How long does it take to replace the new rate and all? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, it, there are, so we mostly focused on one particular neuron, but we have other neurons where we have evidence that this can happen uh, based on certain mutant analysis that we did. But for the neuron of interest, you know, the entire zippering process um, takes around um, 40 to 45 minutes, which you know, as I mentioned, you know, the entire C. elegans development is 14 hours and the nervous system development in the embryo is seven hours. So the process takes about, you know, 35 to 40 minutes, I would say, which is about, you know, one twelfth of uh, the entire development. It is, um, we have seen some variability, but it typically ranges between 35 and 45 minutes for the entire process minded. So like for the, you know, from, you know, counting from the time the two neurons have met till the time when they have completely zippered up to one another. Thank you. And have you tried to manipulate this mechanism by means of some drag or knocking out something like that? Right. So uh, it's still in progress. But uh, as I mentioned a little bit ago that, you know, these adhesion molecules, SIG1 and SIG2, their levels matter a lot. And what is really interesting, and I haven't touched on this in that much detail, but we really found that it is differential adhesion that matters. So if you have two bundles and a neuron is switching from one bundle to another, it is the difference in adhesion that would matter. And so we can manipulate it. So we can overexpress this adhesion molecule in one bundle and sort of prevent the neuron from switching, or we can uh, make it switch in a situation where it won't switch. So uh, we can, we have a control on the adhesion forces. We do think that there are tension or elastic forces that are also important. And for that, we would like to control cytoskeletal uh, molecules, which we 
are, which we want to do in the future again, but that, that is a little trickier because cytoskeletal molecules have roles earlier in development when the neuron is forming. So we would have to you know, pinpoint which molecular players in the cytoskeleton are important for these tension forces. But as far as the adhesion is concerned, we, have, we think we have a reasonably good handle on um, how they work and we can control them to some extent. Thank you. I just want to clarify one more thing. So this mm -hmm. entire signal process is controlled by intrinsic signals, right, from the neurons, or is there an influence from another, like external astrocytes or microglia, something mm -hmm. like that? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. In fact, I, you know, we have been very interested in uh, looking at the role of glial cells. And if you look at the, you know, C. elegans brain, there are glial cells that you know, contact these neurites uh, very closely. And so you would think that they would have an effect. And these glia are also in contact with other tissues, such as, you know, the epidermis, the skin, the muscles. And so, um, and this goes back to one of the earlier questions about movement being important. And really, there would be involvement of different tissues in this process. We have specifically focused on neurons so far because we wanted to first have a handle on which neurons are, you know, regulating this. But as I also mentioned in relation to one of the earlier questions, glial cells are sort of orchestrators of the entire assembly of the brain is what we think in C. elegans. So, you know, they are indirectly playing a role. Whether they are directly influencing the zippering process is something that uh, we haven't tried to look at, but it's a very interesting question. And, you know, Currently, there are tools that let us manipulate these processes temporally so we can conditionally knock down or knock out specific genes. So hopefully those would help us, you know, get to the question of whether these other tissues and cell types could have a role on specifically the zippering process. Thank you. Of course. Thank you for your question. Yeah, I was thinking that this is, so with this system, this will be really important for like a replacement with stem cells because the problem is to figure out how to get the neurons to implement themselves in the system. So your work and the system could really help with that. Let's say we want to replace, you know, and people that have Parkinson's, mm -hmm. the, um, the cells, um, I think this using this um, technology would be uh, really important. Do you think that the mechanisms overlap enough so we can basically try to translate it uh, that way? Right. So that's a that's a great great point. Um, and so for things like rejuvenation or um, you know. Um, rewiring, as I was mentioning a bit ago, you know, there have been attempts of using stem cells and, you know, it's known that in human brains or in other mammalian systems, there are, um, you know, stem cells that become neurons even as adults, right? So that is super interesting. This is different because these neurons have already specified into neurons. And so, um, you know, we are saying, well, we are going to move this completely differentiated neuron into a different position in the brain and help it form connections. And to get to your point about whether this is, if the mechanisms are similar, really some of these are purely mechanical forces, you know? So, you know, the and it's known that there are, a, variety of different adhesion molecules that are important for normal brain development. Um, molecularly, you know, it would be nice to figure out whether these same molecules have similar roles in, uh, in mammalian systems, in other models. Um, and, and even if they don't, you know, you could figure out which are the adhesion molecules that are important. And there is a lot of knowledge on that. So there is, a, there is really a lot of molecular knowledge, but, you know, you would, um, think that because this is these are just physical forces, you would be able to manipulate them in other systems and, you know, reposition neurons, which is, I mean, it's, it's, we are a little far away from that maybe, but it's something that, you know, these findings give us hope that we could, uh, you know, translate these. 
Yeah, thank you, because that's my current job. Um, mm -hmm. I switched to um, a company recently, and uh, mm -hmm. my job to make, uh, yeah, to 3D print organs, but also to innovate them. So, oh, wow. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah. Like, my main project right now is more in, um, so you can, uh, it, it goes away from the topic here, but just to summarize, uh, mm. first, um, that you can use any stem cell of any person into any person to make it cheaper mm. and affordable, but then also innovation. So that's why I asked the question. Mm. But, uh, that's, that's really interesting. That's mostly mechanical forces. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In this case, that's what we focused on. There are, of course, chemicals that are important. And so in some cases, those chemicals underlie the mechanical forces as well. Yeah, thank you. And um, does anyone have more? Yeah, oh, yeah. if ask one more question. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, the thing actually like uh, this mechanism is similar for excitatory and inhibitory neurons, right? Is there any difference or have you looked at that separately? Yeah, that's a good point. We haven't. So the the, the neurons that we focused on are mostly excitatory. Um, we haven't specifically looked at inhibitory neurons, but it's a, it's a good question. And there, in fact, are a lot of, there are a set of inhibitory neurons in the ventral cord of C. elegans, which is this bundle that runs along the body, right? So it's analogous to, to the spinal cord of mammals. Um, so, and, you know, you would think that similar mechanisms would be active there. And we haven't looked, but whether it has any correlation with the neurotransmitter is, is interesting or, or, or on the fact uh, whether it's excitatory or inhibitory. Like right now, we only have focused on a couple of neurons that happen to be all excitatory. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Of course. Thank you for your question. Uh, hi, uh, Dr. Sun Gupta. Congratulations, a very interesting uh, work. And uh, Thank you. Yeah, so I have a question uh, on the uh, microscope that uh, mm -hmm. the new uh, image method that you, you used. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, could you uh, comment more like uh, mm -hmm. in detail, like uh, given the time and spatial resolution required and also from the traditional method you mentioned there's a uh, probably it's uh, not uh, good because the damage or bleaching mm -hmm. and uh, did and uh, what it's more uh, uh, what is again and in the future uh, what do you see the improvement further improvement could be yeah thank you mm -hmm. yeah that's a great question so um you know, microscopy methods are constantly evolving. There are new methods every month almost. And this this imaging system is not absolutely the newest, but it has, you know, you could get resolutions close to 300 nanometers. And the very cool thing about the imaging system that we used in the paper is that you get this 300 nanometer resolution in all directions. So typically, the direction in which you image the sample, you have the best resolution along that axis. And then in an axis perpendicular to that, you would have a lower resolution. But this microscope has an architecture that enables more like, perfectly uniform resolution. So you have 300 nanometers of resolution along any axis of your sample. And, um, as far as the temporal resolution goes, you know, we were able to be, are able, so these C. elegans embryos are about 50 microns. They, they have, they are set between 30 to 70 microns, depending on which way you're imaging. But we usually image 50 microns and we can get an entire 50 micron volume in half a second. Um, and so that, that it's really fast. Um, but then there are ways to actually make it faster depending on how you're acquiring the, the images and which views of the sample you're acquiring. Um, and then as far as resolution goes, you could use, for example, objectives that have a higher numerical aperture, which would give you a slightly higher resolution. And then presently, you know, it's really common to apply, you know, acquire your images initially 
you know, you acquire an initial set of images on another microscope system with a higher resolution and then train a neural network on them and use that network to en enhance your resolution that you get from a microscope that would give you a relatively lower resolution. So really a combination of these different microscopy methods, these different architectures, different objectives, different, um, you know, objective alignments, different views and a combination of these with deep learning really is now pushing the boundaries of the spatial resolution that we can get while doing live imaging. Oh, fascinating. Thank you. So, I mean, the, uh, the, the key point is that without this uh, new technology, the traditional one will be impossible, right? So, so no. So, so the thing is, that, you know, the traditional, the more traditional techniques have their own value. Confocal microscopy techniques, for example, they have their own strengths. So, one of the things about these light sheet microscopes is that, because of their design, you are limited to the size of the sample sometimes uh, that you can image for a particular resolution. Um, also, I said you get around three hundred nanometers, but um, you know, some of the modern confocal systems, which is a more traditional imaging method, right? They have also, you know, moved with time and, you know, you now can get a more close to super resolution imaging using those confocal systems. So there is value in both types of systems. So each of these imaging systems have their own strengths. For our purpose, you know, time was really important. We, we wanted to look at long periods of time without hurting our sample. So for our questions, light sheet microscopy was a good choice. Uh, yeah. Of course. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. We um, have been going for an hour. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, thank you for your time of and this amazing talk. Um, and this is amazing work. So congratulations again. Oh, so la one last question. What does like your current project, your future project, what are you doing next? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm, you know, I started my postdoctoral research around five months ago, and I'm super excited about that too. And I'm still working on C. elegans because I love the model, but I'm looking at a different question. So currently I'm, look, I'm studying this curious phenomenon that's, that's called transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. So it, it is the inheritance of memories in non-genetic ways. So looking at how memories in a particular generation can be inherited across generations without any changes to DNA. So um, how you know an animal can pass on information about the experiences that it gathered during its lifetime to its progeny to sort of protect its progeny from any potential future stress. So it's kind of where um, I'm focusing uh, my efforts on right now, yeah. That's amazing. We had on Saturday um, a guest speaker that talked exactly about this. Um, oh, that's so cool. Okay. <laughs> Monica uh, Pradarshi. I don't know if you know her. So mm -hmm. if you want to look at the club, you can listen to it. It was also wrong. Oh. Okay, um, I will definitely look. That's so, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, that's she great. published um, Suppressing Genes Across Generations. Uh, with this new method, uh, she, mm. um, yeah, she, she, yeah. If you want to check it out, it's sixty-eight minutes. So the first ten minutes you can always forget because <laughs> I just ramble and I'm waiting for the room to open. So it's around an hour, and her talk is probably half an hour. It's around. Yeah, she she was great. So mm -hmm. uh, check her work out, and uh, maybe we can invite both of you then. <laughs> oh yeah, that'll be great. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I think she's going. What did she say, Serena? Do you remember where she's going to Stanford University next? No, I don't remember where she was going next. But yeah, no, it was fascinating. You said that you know she also works with the elegance, mm -hmm. and um, no, it was an interesting talk. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I wrote it down. But um, the title of her 
paper is reprogramming the PIRNA pathway for multiplex and transgenerational gene silencing in C. elegans. So I, I actually can, might might have seen this now that you die. <laughs> so yeah, so I'll look I'll look in the club. Yeah, I'll see which talk it was. Yeah. Good paper. Um so yeah, that's great. So yeah, good luck. Uh, yeah. Cool. Thank so. you for inviting and for all the great questions. It was so great to meet you all. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. It's such a wonderful talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And um everyone in the audience thank you so much for coming and everyone thank you so much for asking questions follow the science society room um a club and uh, we will have more guest speakers coming up um uh, if you liked what you heard today please come back support science <laughs> and scientists tomorrow we have um dr stock um with his a team member, this PhD student, um, talking about the biggest uh, psychedelic study that was ever done. It was like over 6,000 um, 6, um, samples, so trips and neurotransmitters. It's a quite extensive study. And then we have on Thursday, Dr. Liu. Uh, he is actually the founder of one of the NSF quantum uh, institutes. Um, and uh, he, um, he will present a new, a new theory of entropy. He names it Zentropy, uh, solving material design. And so, yeah, that's for this week, what we have planned so far. And then next week, we will have more guest speakers again. So, um, yeah, thank you for coming. And thank you uh, our to our special guest speaker. Dr. Singupta, and good luck for everything. And bye. Thank everybody. you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Right. Bye. Have a good night, everyone. Thank, Thank you. you.